Meet Calvin. Hi. Calvin won 50 bucks off his roommate. That's because Calvin has the iHeartRadio app. iHeartRadio. Which he used to make a pasta song playlist. I'm a genioki. Calvin blasted this on repeat after betting his roommate couldn't complete a four-day juice cleanse. Oh, I can. The song Proper Pappardelle pushed him over the edge. Mm. I love carbs. Good thing Calvin is one of millions with the iHeartRadio app. Download it today and get paid to ruin your roommate's stupid cleanse. Like Calvin. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Lineup with Dave Prodan. I'm Dave Prodan, and this is episode 121. The 2022 WSL Championship Tours regular season has come to a close, with the outer known Tahiti Pro finishing on Friday, won by California Charger Courtney Conlog and Brazilian Style Master Miguel Pupo. The event showcased some incredible moments and played a crucial role in determining the WSL Final Five, who will compete for the world title at the upcoming Rip Curl WSL Finals at Lower Trestles, its window starting on September 8th. On the women's side, match one will feature world number four Brisa Hennessy taking on world number five Stephanie Gilmore. The winner of that will take on world number three Tatiana Weston-Webb. The winner of that will take on world number two Joanne DeFay. And the winner of that will take on the current world number one, Carissa Moore, in a best two out of three for the world title. Interesting to note, we actually have four out of five returners in the WSL Final Five for the women from last year, with Brisa Hennessy joining this year's group where Sally Fitzgibbons was last season. On the men's side, match one will feature world number four, Italo Fajera, up against world number five, Kanoa Igarashi. The winner will take on world number three, Ethan Ewing. The winner of that will take on world number two, Jack Robinson. And the winner of that will face the current world number one, Felipe Toledo, in a best two out of three for the world title. Considerably more change on the men's side for the WSL Final Five this season with Jack Robinson, Ethan Ewing, and Kano Igarashi all joining the mix in place of last year's Gabriel Medina, Connor Coffin, and Morgan Sibilic. The waiting period for the Rip Curl WSL Finals at Lower Trestles commences on September 8th and will be streamed live at worldsurfleague.com and the WSL app. Do not miss it. It is the most important event of the season. All right, episode 121. On the topic of important moments, today's guest is someone who is a singular force within the long, twisting story of professional surfing. An Australian junior standout, he was plucked from high school and thrust onto Rip Curl's provocative search campaign of the 1990s. He then went on to qualify for the Elite Championship Tour in 2001, where his blend of hard-charging symphonic surfing was present at key moments in surfing history. After six years on tour, including back-to-back finishes in the top 10, he fell off, and then he lost his longtime sponsor and had to navigate entirely new dimensions of life. He's been very candid about his struggles, as he was in our conversation, and the surfing world has watched him put the pieces back together, in addition to witnessing his surfing becoming sharper than ever at 43 years young. A constant standout in heavy water waves, where he was awarded the wild card into this year's CT event at the end of the road. While we recorded this before the Adrian Tahiti Pro commenced competition, he would go on to slay not just the world number one, but also the world number two and bag the highest heat total of the event en route to a quarterfinals finish. Just a truly inspiring performance. What you're about to hear is the hog's mindset in the days leading up to Tiapu. Please enjoy the lineup's conversation with North Narrabeen's Nathan Hedge. The good old clap, take one. That's right. How many of you knew what you wanted to be when you were seven years old? I did. I wanted to be world champion. Hey, is there honesty involved in this podcast? Can we be honest? 
You can shut your fucking lips. And then I'll just say, put them up once, let's go. He's like, you look too pretty on the wave. Get ugly. We can talk about DMT if you want. Let's talk to your boxing. Okay, so we have Nathan, the hog hedge here in Tahiti. We're in person, which is really nice. Joining us on the lineup today. Hedgie, thanks so much for talking to us. Stoked to be here, Dave. Thanks for the invite. I've um, been a big fan for quite some time now, so it's an honor. Oh, well, you know, in advance of our conversation, I was trying to connect the dots on where we would have maybe overlapped because I started interning at the ASP in 2005. I got hired in 2006. Um, but I was working in North America in 2006, and I think that was your last full year on the CT, so I wasn't traveling then. But I'm like, that can't be right. But before I worked for the ASP, I was working at the surf shop um, for Rip Curl in San Clemente, and we were so indoctrinated in the search that for me, you were always like one of the guys where I'm like, this is like Hedgie is sort of immortal and iconic and like a perpetual fixture at, at, at that level of surfing. So I know we've interacted, you know, here and then since, but it's just a long way of saying that um, I'm really, really excited to talk to you today. You've been a hero of mine for probably about as long as I've been surfing. Classic. How good's that? <laughs> so we are in Tahiti. It, it's a really special place to you, obviously, in, in, in terms of your career. Stay two of the waiting period. There's not a lot out there in terms of waves today. We haven't started competition. So so what do you get up to on lay days here? Do you surf? Do you train? Do you sightsee? Do you just kind of hide and let the body recover? What's what's your program on days like today? Well, specifically like this trip, I've, I've been here for a week now and I got a chance to, you know, put some dancing boards and even though the conditions weren't amazing, we sort of had these Maramu winds, these southeast winds coming down. I was still able to sort of feel out my boards and, you know, right up to about 6'3 length. So Come to days like today where you can't really surf. Um, it's just been about like today, for example, I've you know started with some yoga this morning and then went out, paddled out, did some paddle training on on a six three just to keep those longer lengths under my under my chest for paddle. You know, paddle from the beach and paddled out to the to the lineup and took some goggles with me and just kind of checked out the reef and paddled up and down and swam up and down and just got a little bit of a look at the bottom and the contours and looked reconnected with my lineups and just got familiar and I guess it's all about a connection for me out there and so just to be immersed in the water and have a look at the bottom and know that these part of the reefs where we're hopefully going to be standing in some barrels is still feels really productive on a day like this for me. Mm. So just, you know, being out there and and reconnecting with lineups, even though there's no waves coming through, just getting familiar with it and trying to be one with it. And um, even like the fish and, you know, there's there's whales out the back so you can hear the whale song and just a real connection thing out there today. So just enjoying the natural beauty of the place and just experiencing it. This comes up with, with elite level surfers like yourself a lot. Surfing's so unique in that, you know, in every other sport, you have a set time when you have to have sort of peak performance, you know, when you're playing or when your match is. And then in surfing, because we're dealing with a really dynamic field of play in the ocean, it, it is hard. To, people have confessed it's hard to manage your energy levels because you don't want to be primed to go all the time and then you're on hold. And have you ever struggled with that in terms of just managing your energy so you're peaking at the exact moment? Is it even something you consider when, when you kind of compete at the CT level? Absolutely, Dave. I mean, I've definitely struggled with that in the past. Um, you know, I've generally got a lot of energy and froth that's just boiling a couple of millimeters under the surface always. So I kind of have to, you know, be mindful of 
my output, like what, how much energy for what situation and manage that and, um, have balance there. And it's something that I've had to learn over time. And I feel like I'm gotten a lot better at it. Um, especially when there's like a big swell coming, you know, I'm reflecting back to 2014 where I'd got through my second round heat and I had that 10 point ride against Adriano. And then, you know, I was matched up with Gabriel Medina, who's world number one at the time and hadn't won a world title yet. So it was all this hype around, you know, that heat and, we had like a solid week, seven days of waiting for a swell. And it feels a little bit like that here this year where, you know, we haven't even got it started. There's all these implications of, you know, it's the last event before the finals. And, um, you know, there's so much interest on this event and you now there's a big swell coming. And so, you know, I've, I've sort of had to remind myself of staying in the moment because I don't want to get to the end of the week and you're already worn out before right. a wave comes through, you know. So um, it's about, ticking the boxes as much as I can and then kind of letting go and listening to my body and my intuition and even if some other guys are doing this and that and the other well that might be good for them but I got to listen to what's right for me and you know I'm fortunate in that I can lean on all my past experiences here and you know in some ways it's just like riding a bike you know it's kind of like I've ticked off what I need to tick off as far as board lengths and reconnect with the lineup and I can lean on the past experiences that I've been in this position before and had to do exactly what I'm doing now so I feel pretty comfortable, you know, sitting here today knowing that I've done all I can and it's just about, of, you know, staying in the present moment and then, you know, I'll be able to make the right decision at the time when it comes rather than trying to get too far ahead. So, yeah, it's just about um, managing that, I guess, and it's, it's, it's a learnt skill. It didn't come naturally. It doesn't come naturally for me because <laughs> I've got most things in my life from being proactive and getting after things and making things happen. And, and I guess now I'm 43, I sort of I know myself a bit better and, and um, I've definitely been guilty of um, wanting things so much or pushing things away from kind of forcing things. So it's about, you know, being a little more calculated and um, containing some of the froth. You mm-hmm. know, it's innately in me and it's not something that I'm going to deny or, or or play small about, but try to um, just understand, I guess, like I you know, said at the start of this, that knowing what output for what situation. Yeah. Yeah. And whether that comes naturally to someone or not, it does seem like being able to understand yourself and being able to manage your energy levels and pacing and peaking at the right moment is something that everyone has to kind of gain, as you said, with experience and age. You know, you could actually be a completely put together person at 17, but you're going to know so much more after 10 years on tour, 20 years on tour, whatever it is. And then you can kind of put those pieces in play. And that seems like it would be a huge advantage to someone like yourself here um, compared to your competitors. Yeah, I think so. It's it's hard to put all that experience on young shoulders. It, you know, you can you can get advice on the lineups and you can simulate as much as you want, but it's, it's kind of like that match play, you know, the tennis player, it's a time on the court in a match and you know, it's the same. I think it's relevant for surfing where, you know, it's the time in the rash vest when you've got a minute to go and there's a set coming and, you know, you need a score and, um, you know, it's all on the line and that's kind of what, you know, it's when you have your breakthrough moments and you learn a lot about yourself in those moments and it's sort of hard to emulate that outside of, you know, so yeah, the fact that I've had, you know, I had, I got a wild card in 99, I won trestles, so I got invited over that year, and then, I think that was in 2000, pardon me, 2000 was that year, and then I qualified 2001, so then I had seven years on the tour, and then I had a final out here in a third place, so there was, I don't know how many heats there, but maybe 20 or 30 heats there, and then I fell off the tour, but I came back for the trials um, 
five years because when you make the finals of the trials, you get invited back each year. So they had to keep inviting me back. And um, I made the final each year. I made the final four times. So I guess there's, what, five or six heats there yeah. each event times four. So there's another 25 heats. Um, when you add that all up, I guess there's been like 50-plus heats, Yeah, which is pretty solid. Yeah, and even the way you describe that, there are a lot of you know synchronicities as well. As we talked about, it's day two. We haven't had competition start yet. By the time this airs, competition would have been completed. So at every point, so at this point right now, every possible future is available to us. Um, you're here competing at the Outer Known Tahiti Pro as a replacement for reigning three-time world champion Gabriel Medina, who you had your heat against in 2014. You're also one of the ambassadors for Outer Known, which has a very elite level team. You've got 11-time world champ Kelly Slater. You've got Tahitian icon Raimana Van Bastolier. You've got uh, Kevin Schultz. You've got Mark Cunningham. It's an eclectic group of people, but... It does feel like Outer Known is a nice fit for Tahiti because there's so much DNA, not just from Kelly and Raimana, but yourself. You know, a huge part of your career has been here. So can you walk us through how you got the call up for this event and and, and where you were when you got it and, and what your process was basically from then to now? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Outer Known has supported me for the last three or so years. And um, it started as an ambassador role and things have ramped up over time with some more trust and opportunities. And um getting to know the ethos and, and uh, who they are as, as a brand and being so fond of what they're about and, and what they stand for. So it's been an organic relationship sort of built up over time. And I actually had the opportunity last year, but through COVID, you know, the event got called off. So, you know, Outernone got the presenting rights, the naming rights for the event. And um, there was great, you know, excitement around popping over last year and then obviously got called off. So, and then this year's event was on the calendar, but I didn't actually see Outernone's name associated. It was just Tahiti Pro for, for a long time. So I'd actually just sort of let go and figured, well, there's no opportunity this year because it's not Outernone this year. And that's a bummer. You know, it would have been good to happen in 2021, but this is what's happening in the world right now and a lot of acceptance around that. And that's just how it is. And then around about a month ago, um, Mark Walker, CEO, gave me a call and said, look, we'd We've um, done a you know last minute deal with WSL and things have worked out and we're we're so excited that that we've got the event for the next two years and um, you know as a presenting sponsor we're we're allocated the one one wildcard for the event and we choose you so I was just like I was just my jaw dropped and I was just you know speechless and um, the fact to get the opportunity to come back around here it came around about the right way too like I didn't push it or force it it just it just it just happened you know which is which is always better than, you know, sort of going after things when they just come to you. It feels like a better energy around it. And, um, you know, I guess off the back of my 2014 performance and, and my 10-point ride, I guess there's a flow and effect of that. And, you know, there's a lot of people that want to see me compete out here. So, you know, I'm just stoked at the opportunity. But yeah, I actually found out for sure because it still wasn't like a given that I'd get an opportunity to surf in the event. There's some things need to happen as far as getting the spot and some people need to, to withdraw from the event. And there's a couple of names that, had penciled in as withdrawing but John John was out sailing we weren't sure if he was going to sail here and then um, Gabby was injured but we've seen all these photos of him training and getting back fit so we're kind of thinking looks like Gabby. Ivan Drago on the training yeah that's <laughs> it so we're like maybe they're both going to turn up but anyways it's turned out that they've pulled out and Chloe's pulled out as well so it's um it's happened that Out and have got one of the wild cards and I found out literally as I was putting them in board bags on the oversized belt 
because I figured I'd come over here anyway, get bailed, do some content for out and own and mm. be representative here on the ground and and um, just have a great time here for a week. And and um, if I get in the contest, that'll be a bonus. But I found out as I was putting my boards on the <laughs> oversized belt. So it was a good good flight to just be excited. I was going to get some rest on the flight, but then I was too excited hearing that news, so I didn't get any rest. <laughs> <laughs> you've been coming here a long, long time. In fact, you you probably competed here before some of your competitors were even born at this point. You know, from your perspective, has the end of the road changed a lot? Or has it stayed the same? Like, what have you noticed? Yeah, because it's been, the last year I did the trials of 2017, so it's been roughly five years. So I wondered about how much it might have changed with with um, industry here now and how things might have progressed. But um, thankfully, you know, pleasure to say it hasn't changed too much landscape-wise. And, you know, there's a few more few more buildings popped up and stuff and there's kind of kids kind of come up and ask for stickers and hats a little more now but it's it's stayed relatively the same it's still the same cool little vibe and a lot of the same houses that haven't been touched like as you just come over the last little river here on the left hand side there's a little house there i was keen to see um because in the early 2000s i would leave my boards there because i was staying back a little ways i'd have to ride up the end of the road here and i used to leave my boards richie lovett and bo Emmett and shane Powell and the boys used to stay in this house there and um I swear it looks exactly the same as it did in 2001. So I was just like, <laughs> things are just the same, you know. But yeah, it's 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 got the same magic feel, and it hasn't hasn't changed too much. It's still got the natural beauty, and it's um there's a little bit of Wi-Fi now. It's a bit different, but uh, <laughs> it's relatively the same. It hasn't changed much in 20 years. Yeah, yeah, it's cool. And, and your relationship with the waves probably even only gotten even more intimate over time, you know. And and do you remember coming over here the first times and you know, do you have a comparison in terms of level of, of fear of the unknown versus what you've probably experienced over the last 20 years as a surfer and a competitor? And, and does that ever go away, you know, when we have a big swell on the horizon? Mm. Yeah, I was thinking back um, my first year here, I came with on a rip curl endorsement trip and we, we shot a campaign for, for trunks or something. And Manoa Drolet was um, sponsored by rip curl. So we kind of got an open pass to come here and stay with Manoa and his dad and we came down the end of the road here with Beyond's boat and um, we were the only people there, like just the guys on the team. I think it was Poncho and, and uh, Jamie O'Brien, myself and uh, Zane Harrison and Manoa. So might be forgetting one or two other guys, but it was only us in the lineup. So it was, it was pretty cool. There wasn't too many people around. It's probably about 97. Mm-hmm. And then, so I got an experience at Chopu then and I actually injured my knee out here then. So I didn't get too much time in the water, but that was my first time surfing waves out here. And then I came back for the Gotcha MCD, the big contest, the WQS one, I think Kobe Abaddon won. And it was huge. It was big and scary. And there's like, there's one or two jet skis around, but they weren't there to pick you up. It was just in case something really gnarly happened. So it was pretty raw back then, you know, we we're just trying to, everyone hadn't really been here before or surfed it. And it was just, it was legit 10 foot and pretty stormy and gnarly. So my first time in a rash fest was that experience. Um, super sketchy. Um, I just remember a lot longer boards too, like seven O's and six tens and, and those longer lengths. So that was kind of my first experience. And then, you know, I guess, yeah, having time, having to front up each year, like there's a familiar feeling each each year I get when I know I'm coming here there's the same sort of um it's not full-blown fear but it is just a little kind of healthy nervous kind of energy around it what how big it might be in the forecast and it's the same feeling that I get but uh each year I've pushed through that and and I've been able to get on the other side of it and it's turned out to be incredible experience so it's kind of like this you know you could 
possibly have the worst wipeout of your life, but you could also have the best way of your life. So it's it's been, you know, staying open to the possibilities and trusting in your ability and skill. And it's definitely helped this year knowing that, you know, my experience is built upon, built upon more experience and having to, you know, be in that moment and have all the feelings come up and have to make decisions and made the waves that I've had to choose. And yeah, it's just one of those things that, you know, I'm definitely leaning leaning in towards for this year. But it doesn't go away. It's always that 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 sort of anticipation and the fear and knowing there's a big swell coming. Um, but I back myself and you know calculated risk and and um you know just trust in the process. From a surfer of, of your level, you, know, you talk about you know the potential to have the worst wipe out of your life. For the listeners at home, what would that constitute at a wave like Chopu? Like what would be the scenario where you'd think like that's that's maybe the worst it would be? You know, being out there. Well, I guess, I mean, I've had an, an early morning experience out there where it was super west and I've come into that west bowl, you know, with a lot of speed and it, it's just gone so west, it's just turned like an elbow on me and I've just got absolutely ragdolled and obliterated. I had my, my teeth come through my bottom lip and I got blown into the reef and that was that really shook me up a lot, you know. Um, I mean, I've dislocated my shoulder out here on a wipeout. You know, this I've had moments out here that have, you know, definitely scared me. But I guess, you know, it's just, there's just so much power in the whitewater here. It's just, it's hard to describe. It's kind of like the whitewater at sunset or something. If, you know, listeners have surfed sunset, you know, you just get clipped by the whitewater. It's just, you just get, you get obliterated. It's like, even if a little bit of whitewater clips you, you just, you really feel the power. So, yeah, it's just like, it's got so much force, you know, it's just, you just get absolutely hammered. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) We'll see how it goes. I mean, like... As you pointed out, the concept of calculated risk as well, you know, and you do seem like someone, even when you were on tour and and maybe you didn't have the same experience that you do now, but your surfing always seemed fully committed. And and that aspect, especially at somewhere like Chopu, seems like a huge advantage. You know, it does seem like one of those waves that half measures seem to get punished pretty badly. Yeah, I think it's a real asset to have commitment in your wheelhouse out here. It's just like when you see that wave, because you don't get much time, you know, it presents, it's there, and you have to just not take a backward step. You know, you have to, like, commit and then just totally rip in. You can't really second guess, you know, in the paddle. Then you think you've got the wave, you need to do a couple more paddles to get down it. So you just have to really back yourself and commit. And, um, you know, it's it's scary and it's it's overwhelming because the better waves, they look like they're going to close out. And they don't look makeable. Mm. They really don't. You know, that's the thing that every year I come back, you kind of have to get through again and push through because you surf other waves throughout the year. And even though I've been coming here for 20 years, it still blows my mind when I come back and it's barreling. You, you, you just, the, the blue and how round it is, how deep you can be on the foam ball, you know, it takes a bit to get used to because your mind's going, this is not makeable. I'm too deep. Mm. What the hell? Like, this is bending all the way to the channel. You know, it yeah. looks like a closeout, but they're the ones they're actually looking for because by the time you bottom turn, you slingshot up into the wave face and it hits the reef and the deep bit and comes back to the shallow bit, you actually get out in front of it. So it's a real head fuck to, to you know, if, if it looks like it's going to be a makeable one, you're probably going to get like an Armandy, like a standing in a barrel, but you're not going to look deep. And from where the judge's tower is, like they're down the end of the wave. So... They're seeing the whole thing. They're going to see right through you if you try to, you know, there's nowhere to hide. It's, um, you know, it's, I've had some of the best four-point rides in my life out there where you're just standing in big barrels and you pull out and you're like, 
four point ride. You're like, what the hell? <laughs> Best four point over. Yeah, my life. I had a heat with Gilhermy Hurdy one time, and um, that happened, and it was like clutch moment, and I needed a score, and and you know, it wasn't a very big score, but I got a West Bowl, and I came down, and I pumped up, and I got too far in front of me. And by that stage, you can't wipe speed off because you're already going so fast, you can't slow down. Yeah. And I was kind of standing in, and I kind of wasn't, and I wasn't as deep as I wanted to be, and I tried to sell it to him, and I got like a five, and it was just like, oh no. So that was like early 2000s so i kind of knew from that that you know you got to get super deep especially being on your forehand too like if they see you slow down or drag they get pretty over that by you know a couple of days into the event mm. and straight away you know they want to see you come from behind and pumping and they want it to be like how did he make that you know same with the backsiders if they're dragging their butt too much and slowing down you know it's not going to be a huge score so it's all about that no hands and flying through and speed yeah. and commitment so yeah, it's it's an intense spot, but it's it's the best. It's my favorite spot to compete at for sure. And it's interesting now, you know, compared to when you had your full time run on the championship tour. Um, you know, the tour has been redesigned in the last few years now, and and this is the final event before determining the WSL final five for the world title, deciding Rip Curl WSL finals, lower trestles. So you kind of have three general buckets of surfer here in terms of motivation, right? You've got people who are very safe in the final five that are probably not too excited about surfing arguably the most dangerous wave on tour right before the world title event. They don't want to get hurt before that. You got people that are on the cusp. They're trying to cut in there. And then you've got people who are probably don't have a chance at doing it, but they're here anyway, and they probably want to get barreled. And then people like yourself who are, you don't have the final five kind of motivation, but you're here to prove something, you know, and, and, do you consider any of that amongst your competitors ahead of the event, your motivations, your own motivations and how they relate to others? Or do you just kind of solely focus on yourself? I'd be lying if um, I didn't say I'd thought about, you know, what it could mean for me and my family and my career if, you know, I do really well here. Mm. You know, given the back of my 10-point ride, what that did for me and how it made me feel. And just, you know, I was riding on a high after that wave for a long time. There's, there's no doubt about it. It was, it was such an incredible thing to experience and for me personally like what it took to take that wave and to make it was it had a ripple effect into multiple areas of my life you know so you know to have that opportunity again this year for sure like I, I want to put an incredible performance and and do myself and my family proud and and surf the best that I can and there's an element that you know for the years that I watched that I wasn't in the event I want to do that I want to be there and I reckon I could have made that one is that that drive and the hunger as a competitor. So now that I've got a, an opportunity and a platform to to be side by side and, and on the same playing field is, is a super exciting prospect and, you know, it's happening. So, but as far as looking at other competitors and, you know, playing spoiler or something like that, you know, I bumped into Tommy Whitaker a couple of days ago and, you know, he, he's coaching uh, Kainoa and Griff. And we had a bit of a cheeky talk. He's like, you know, you're going gonna to help my boys out, you know, this week, whatever. And so, yeah, man, if it happens that way, it'll happen that way. You know, I'd be super psyched however, however the cards fall, you know. And, you know, it was the same with, um, you know, with Kelly and Andy that year. The Kelly won the world title. And I had to beat Andy for Kelly to win in Brazil. Yep. You know, I wasn't thinking about Kelly's winning his world title. I just wanted to beat Andy. I wanted to get to the final and win that event. So I didn't really think about anything else. And, doesn't really serve me and my purpose, my task at hand to think about that, you know, because you've got to stay in your own lane. But yeah, I mean, I'd be excited at, you know, any any match and battle, like 
matchup that's got implications has always got a lot riding and I seem to lift on those big occasions and you know at the start of the week I had a draw with um Jack Robbo and Baramamia mm-hmm. and I figure Jack's probably the guy to beat here you know he's coming second but I feel like he's kind of like how Slater was 10 years ago and he's coming through he's probably in the best form yep. um he's you know things have clicked for him this year and so I figure that you know Jack's probably the guy to beat so I was super excited about that heat and then you know few people have pulled out and the draw's changed yep and now I look at the draw and I've got world number one and I've got the greatest of all time and so I'm just relishing that opportunity you know like I get to go against the world number one and the greatest of all time at probably the best wave on tour so like I'm super I'm just authentically like just so excited to have that opportunity it's interesting to hear you talk about that too because just to speculate a little bit you know what you're articulating you value are largely intangible things you know and it's it's something that's come up with a lot of surfers lately because i think when you're young it's like i need the sponsorship and i need the money and i need all these things and it's really important and you know stabilization and everything and but you know as you talk to surfers and they get older they start obviously everyone's got a mortgage either figurative or otherwise you got to pay it Mm. but the things that they seem to value time after time are kind of these dragon slaying experiences in a way. They're like, even even the design for the finals largely came out of the world champ saying, I want to know what it feels like to beat the best surfer in the world in the water for the world title. And, and it kind of had nothing to do with you know, money or sponsor. It's like, I, when I'm 80, that's what I'm going to remember. And it feels like it's almost the same tone in the way that you talk about the ripple effect of committing to something so critical like a perfect 10 wave and making it what what that does to your life after that in a way yeah i i agree with you there it's um you know i look at i guess looping back to to being in, in the heat with kelly like over my whole career i had three heats with him you know i was able to beat him once and i was like i was happy to go to my grave and i was <laughs> able to beat kelly one time you know if someone asked oh, i never serve against slater i'm like yeah i beat him once you know it's kind of cool to be able to say that and i just figure like i mean if someone had to said to me at the start of this year even hey you know what you're going to be in tahiti event this year you're going to be up against the world number one and you're going to get to surf against slater i'd just be like how like i'd just be like mind boggled so i think you know obviously the stage who knows what kelly's going to do but you know inevitably at some point he will you know called it a day so i just you know for me to be able to surf a heat with him out here while he's still competing and at my favorite spot and maybe his favorite spot other than pipe like it's just it's something i'm going to remember when i'm 80 as you you know pointed to before it's it's something that's it's going to go down in history win lose or draw whatever the result or the outcome the fact that i've got back here and you know i've made it to here and I've, the effort that it's taken to stay relevant and be given this opportunity is like it's massive so that's what i'm going to remember yeah, and we got waves on the way, so that's pretty exciting. Yeah, the waves on the way. Swells generate the waves that are coming have been generated right now. You know, like the storms happening now; they're on their way. It's Love pretty it. cool to think. Yeah, we're going to take a quick break to get a word in from our sponsors, and when we come back, we will wind the clock back on the hog. We'll be right back. WSLStore.com is powered by Shopify. We love the analytics we can check on the go. A lot of us are addicted to checking the Shopify app on our phones. We also love the automations and marketing integrations with our social and YouTube channels. It has incredible features to help us manage our global audience, including international taxation support and great shipping optionality. 
Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek skis, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the US, and Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash lineup, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash lineup now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash lineup. As surfing makes its impressive showcase for the second time at the Olympic Games Paris 2024, Samsung is capturing every epic moment through a new docuseries and a celebration of our culture, bringing the spirit and stories of surfers, including Joanne DeFay, John John Florence, and Jack Robinson to the forefront. Want to dive deeper into our world? Visit youtube.com slash at Samsung. So we were um, we were laughing before the uh, we started the conversation because you are maybe more so than any other surfer in history, so synonymous with North Narrabeen, <laughs> um, and 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 oddly enough, you know, I, I lived there because my mom's Australian and my brother was born there, so we lived um, on the same street actually, uh, maybe at the same time. It was 80, 84, 85, 86, so Goodwin Street. 812 Goodwin Street was our address. But you actually, you weren't born in North Narrabeen. You were born in, up in Brisbane. Yeah, I was born up the Sunshine Coast at Brisbane. Uh, my dad was a builder and um, built a bunch of um, houses in Brisbane. And then we moved to the Sunshine Coast and um, dad had built a block of 20 units on the beachfront. And the recession hit in 87 and... Um, all the sales, the pre-sales of the units fell through and dad's brother bailed him out and bought one off him. And then, you know, we had to move to Sydney. Dad chased the work down there and that's when I moved to the Northern Beaches. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, born in Queensland, Sunshine Coast, kind of started my surfing up there. Dad was a builder, as I said, and he had um, Joel Parkinson's dad, Brian, as as his brickie. <laughs> so, I remember going up to Double Island Point up from Noosa, up the other end there, um, and surfing with Joel. Some of my earliest memories with my brother and my dad and Joel. I remember being out double on point, seeing dolphins and just holding on backside, holding on so tight with my, my fingernails, my fingerprints are on the outside underside rail and just holding on for dear life going across, just screaming. And, you know, that's such a cool memory to have. And you know, I think Parker then a couple of years later moved to the Goldie, sort of, you know, started getting sponsored and doing his career stuff, whatever. And we went to Sydney. So we kind of, went our ways but we started out surfing together which is pretty cool 
That's really cool. It's interesting too, and this is something I'm I'm fascinated by. And someone explained it to me once where they said, you know, in the 40s when World War II was happening, all the coastline property in Australia was actually pretty cheap because there were such fears of, you know, a Japanese invasion. So it created, you know, the socioeconomic conditions for working class families to live very, very close to the beach, you know, and you had generations of them develop you know, into very, very good servers, you know, and they had this like grit and mongrel determination that is something that might be evaporating today, you know, to live on the coast anywhere in the world, but in particular, Australia is not the same as it was in the 1940s. And, you know, as you said, your dad, it sounds like you and Joel came from similar backgrounds in terms of, you know, work ethic and, and, um, and that, but, but it is something I'm fascinated by because you kind of look at the information age has made everything ubiquitous where it's like, you could have the same access to diet and training and surfboards and you can watch webcasts or surf videos. Everyone's got the same and kind of that isolates the point of difference at the elite level to motivation, you know, and you can make an argument. That's probably why the Brazilian storms been so successful in recent years. They've just been hungrier as a collective. I agree. And what, what do you see? I, I don't want to, I guess I'll skip ahead for a second, but you're so entrenched in Australian surf culture right now. What do you see trend wise from young Australian surfers coming up from from just the motivation perspective compared to when you and Joel were coming up? I think there's a movement back towards the camaraderie amongst the Australian athletes. I think, you know, when I was on the tour and the generations before us, they, they really stuck together and, you know, they traveled together and there was this, this, you know, when we were doing it, we were like each other's coach and each other's caddy mm. and we'd do legs, you know, you'd go to Europe and you'd spend uh, you know two months on the road and you'd all be in the one hire car and you'd stay together and whoever did the best in the contest would pay for the accommodation and you know you'd, you'd play cards to work out who's going to buy the next case of beer and it was just like you know we just hung out you know and it was kind of like even if you weren't in the event you were pissed off like because you wanted to be the, the guy in the final you wanted to be jumping up the ratings but we were down there for each other and it was kind of more like okay everyone's going to get their turn mm. you know like maybe this week it's Joel's Joel got a lot more turns than most others to be honest <laughs> He got way more turns than I did. But like one time through France, you know, he won back-to-back Lacanau, then down to Hossigore. He won those two weeks and then, you know, Mick won a bunch of things and I won trestles. And it was just like everyone's going to have their turn, you know, and it was motivating and we all lifted each other up and we wanted to beat each other. And it was dog-eat-dog. And um, But we, we experienced it together, you know, and we, mm. we kind of like lived it and um, we were there for each other. And I think then it kind of just got so one-off and one-out and – kind of just I mean it was good that it went more professional and there was more money and people could get their own coaches and whatnot but it kind of was just I think it wasn't really conducive to that connection and camaraderie I've had feedback from some of the guys on tour now that when they first came on they didn't really know where they fit in Mm. and it was kind of like where to go and hang you know it was a little bit different and now I'm seeing I think it was a you know, even ratings wise, I think there's been a hangover like a lag of um of that and it's it's turned up in the ratings and um you know, I think it was evident when the Challenger Series went to the back half of Europe where there was like a three-month leg yeah. where they were kind of, you know, there was 10 or 12 athletes, men and women, and they were kind of forced to go together because it was just them on the back half of the year. So, they all kind of had to be together. It kind of forced them to, right. to join forces and to be collective. And I saw it in Portugal where, you know, the, the Ring of Fire came out. And it helps when they, when you get results on the back of, you know, big results. 
Um, you know, India Robinson got a massive result and then Jacko Baker and I think it sort of happened from there and I saw the Aussies banding together and I just witnessed that from afar from at home but I saw it coming back, you know, and I think it's been, you know, a real positive thing that, um, you know, it's transpired into results and, you know, now we've got four Australians in the top 10 vying for, you know, there's two that are kind of safe, you know, in um, Ethan and uh, Callum mm-hmm. is there too. Um, Jack Robbo's in second, and then Connor Leary's in ninth. So you've got four all those guys pretty much stay together. Jack does his own thing a fair bit with his with his girl and whatnot, but um, you know, there's a real real motivation there, and um, it's healthy rivalry, like kind of like was with Mick Joel and a couple of the other guys coming through there. So I'm I'm delighted to see it come back. Yeah, it's an interesting observation too, as you said. Like, what's the Bane quote from Batman? Like, victory has defeated you. You know, in, the, in a way, it works so well to the point where it became, I think it's a good point on the professionalism of it, but also just that lent itself to a little bit of isolationism, right? Where it's like there's a single person, they've got a, a coterie of people around them, and it's not the camaraderie thing that everyone came up with. And I think you're totally right when you especially look at the results this year. They've all had to kind of bind together to to do that collectively, which is really cool to see. Yeah, it's sort of not just you, you know, it's the whole country behind it. You feel that energy and the force, you know, because otherwise you're just sort of singled out and then you're not part of. And mm. it doesn't, you know, you've got all that back and behind you and, you know, the mentality of, hey, you, everyone gets their turn. It's kind of been a theme, you know. Yeah. So it's just like you'll get your turn and, and just keep putting the work in, you know. Yeah. Um, and it, this is just my observation again, but I feel like, you know, with Gabby, you know, he was so one out and just seemed so sort of untouchable and exclusive for a couple of years there. And I, I've seen him work with Andy King and I I suspect they worked on being a little more approachable. And I've seen him hanging around the contest area a bit more and just a bit more interactive. And I feel like it's you know, been a positive thing for Gabby in that mm. regard. I don't know. I'm just, it's just, just my, my thoughts on it. I'm yeah. not too sure if that's true, but I feel like, um, you know, it could be, that's a good thing that Andy's picked up on and tried to shine a bit of light on, you know? Yeah, and that's probably coincided. We were talking before, it's a good time to get to it now, but just, you know, surfers, whether they're men or women, really talented ones, qualifying for the show so young, you know, like early, mid-teens in some cases. And I think, you know, with someone like Gabriel, it's a really astute observation that Kingy came in at the right time for him because he was maturing as like an adult as well and realizing like oh i'm understanding myself better this kind of stuff's healthy for me and the community stuff's important too and and narabeen in particular is a surfing community that produces i won't even say outsized but just a a remarkable amount of world-class surfers world champions for for such a small community and and maybe if if you don't mind for the listeners could you kind of just describe the community there and, and, and what it's like from a surfer's perspective? Yeah, I mean, guess it's it's pretty insular. Like it's um, been a little peninsula there. You know, you've got, got the lake on one side and the ocean. So you do have to kind of turn off to, to go in through Narrabeen. And, you know, being a local there and being from there, I don't notice it as much, but it's very hard to get waves there. And it's kind of got that localism vibe. And it's mellowed out a lot from the 70s and 80s as far as the localism goes, but it's it's still... It's an intimidating place to turn up to and try to get waves at and, you know, on a good day it's it's you know, the locals run the show and mm. it's um it's not the most welcoming, inviting kind of environment <laughs> for an outsider coming in. So um but I I guess growing up from my experience it was the best thing for my surfing because, you know, collectively in a very short um geographical distance, 
anybody who was anybody in the surfing world was from there at that time, you know, men and women world champions, you know, we had Lane and Pam Burridge down towards Manly. Mm-hmm. And then we had, um, we had, uh, Damien Harbin at Narrabeen and we had Tommy Carroll at Newport and Barton at Whaley and Potts was living at Whaley too. Yeah. So we had like all those guys who were just idols and world titles, just multiple world titles right from that area. So it was such an incredible breeding ground. It was, you know, it was just, um, you know, the epicenter of world surfing. And then all the pioneers too, like the people who, you know, like Simon Anderson being from there and, and just such characters from that from that place, like the Fitzgerald brothers and just real iconic surfers that, um, you know, when they stood up on a wave, you knew who they were, mm. you know. Um, there was so much talent from there that, you know, being a profession, aspiring professional surfer, it was like you just lifted to that level. Yeah. So you paddle out in the lineup and that was the level. And there wasn't much sort of like – there was always someone better out in the water. So you just wanted to be at that level and, and to rise to that occasion. And nobody was really like giving you too many pats on the back. You just put your head down and go back out and try harder. And you weren't really getting accolades or like wind blown up your ass because there was always someone better. And it was real, you kept pretty humble. And if you got pretty big for your boots, you got slapped down pretty quick too. Mm. So I think it was good, you know, because it was just the level was to aspire to was the ceiling was high, you know. Yeah. And yeah. it seems like it'd be such a unique, like, almost like microclimate wherein even if you weren't as a young surfer being developed even if you weren't paddling out with like an explicit goal of i'm going to train for the next board riders event i'm going to train for the qs event whatever every free surf session i'd imagine is almost a competition in and of itself because the level's so high and and you can kind of you could kind of i would imagine as a young surfer developing not not overreach in terms of goals every single time you surf because you're just focused on I'm getting better than that person I'm working to beat that person today you know and over time the results are just so high because you're like oh man every time it's so intense every time I paddle out yeah you're right it's just so much talent in the water that um it was it was hard to not be inspired and you know you wanted to be up with the cream of the crop so it just it happens at a board riders level too you know and there's such a deep pool of, of talent there and, you know, it helped with my competitive career because I remember being chucked out with like five minutes to go when I was 12 in the surf tags, you know, surf for North Narrabeen. Yeah. And I had to get a wave, you know, the last five minutes and get back in the box, you know. So they used to chuck me out there and I had to get the wave. I was the grom and get, whether it be on the shore or somewhere and get back in. And I remember that, like that was instilled in me early, like the pressure and you can't fall off because you only get one wave and you've got to get back in on time. Otherwise, you know. Yeah, yeah. It was gnarly, but being 12, that kind of set me up. And now I know like when, if there's one minute to go and there's a wave coming, I swear it helped me, you know, and it's a different, it's a different pressure and intensity when you're surfing for your, your, your whole beach and your whole community, you know, surfing's pretty one out. If you fall or if you win, you've kind of, you know, there's, there's a team, it's a team effort and there's people that help you get there and there's people that are definitely in your corner, but it's not like a team sport. Yeah. And this is the only sort of, you know, being there at Narrabeen with the, national tag, tag teams it's um it can be incredible for for your own surfing career in that in that regard you know it's a different different pressure and different skill to 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 push through it totally yeah and when you were young and, and on this pretty meteoric rise as a professional surfer was there any other distraction for you activity wise other sports or school or music was there anything that you know sliding doors moment you could have gone oh maybe i'm not going to be a professional surfer i'm going to do this not really, Dave. It was just all in, like a whole hog on the on the surfing. I just I never really 
No, it was, it was it was pretty tunnel vision on being a surfer. I remember being a grom skating down Ocean Street at Narrabeen and hitting the little grass things, thinking they were white waters and like end sections and simulating, like seeing the Coke Classic at Narrabeen uh, when I was a grom. Uh, you know, until that was back on again throughout the whole year, I'd just pretend I was in that event and yeah, without knowing I wanted to be a pro surfer, it, it just happened. Like I never sort of thought I'm going to be a pro surfer one day. I was just I was already doing it without knowing. Right. Yeah, and then you know I started surfing for rip curl getting paid to surf by them at 13 and then i started doing the search trips that whole campaign at yeah 13 14 i did my first 28 day trip up in the mens on the indies trader at 14 so it just how i started surfing amazing waves with the world's best surfers yeah well i'm glad i'm glad you brought that up because that was going to be my next question Mm. is there is probably never ever going to be another time when a young surfer is going to have that kind of trial by fire development phase because as a teenager as i mentioned in the upfront like you were part of this pretty radical pretty feral marketing program for rip crawl called the search where it, it was there isn't really a there was never a parallel before or after right in mid-aughts you'd have kind of young surfers that would go to indies four for a couple of weeks a few times a year but the that's not what it was when you were coming up. So for listeners, can you give us a little bit of background as to what the what the actual search was in the 90s? Yeah, it was, um, let's just say the duty of care probably wasn't there, but it would be now. It was mm. it was pretty out there. I mean, I remember getting, you know, Rip Curl in the Feral Kingdom movie, they, they documented it, me getting my homework off my school teacher going in and asking, you know, my sweet to go, can I get some homework? And it was part of the, part of my seg- section so i was getting whipped out of school um at 14 to go on a 28 day boat trip as guinea pigs up like to do some scouting from like the bottom or bottom of the mints right up to bunda arche and i was the grommet on the trip so like my job was to like clean the billy and get the cold cold beers for the boys you know what i mean like it was just you know my heroes were on the boat and um you know the parties at night and um you know i would get sent in on the little tender to like try to find waves with martin daly and just uncharted spots, you know, on different tides and just maybe there's a wave there, maybe it's not. And, you know, the, the Indies trader would stay outside on course and I'd go in with Martin and try to, and Ted Grandma and try and surf and find waves. So it was, it's this crazy opportunity in that regard. Um, but I definitely grew up pretty quick and I probably got exposed to some things that, you know, made me grow up pretty quick, you know. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, a lot of it is for all of us that run away and join the circus to an extent, it's arrested development. You know, you've got even when you are the grom on a trip, the adults aren't necessarily emotionally mature adults and, and capable and certainly not back then either, you know? And so, but it, I, I wonder too, of all the characters on the search, it must've been so tempting for some of them. And as we saw, some of them did just want nothing to do with competition ever again. Whereas you were always, it, it, it seems like because of your background from Narrabeen too and how competitive that environment was, a child of two worlds in a way where you got to perfect your approach to surfing just idyllic perfect waves but you also had this competitive mongrel part of you too so you're almost very fortunate in that respect because by the time you hit the tour you're ready to go yeah it's i agree with you on that one it was it was incredible for my surfing and you know getting to surf with 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 current and and Pauli and poncho and Damien Hardman, like I had him as a sounding board for the competitive side and, you know, to pick his brain on just his, you know, his mindset to win heats, you know, was an incredible asset early on, you know, come up from Narrabeen and then, 
having to front up to new spots and work out new spots and, and try new equipment. Like it was so many opportunities, you know, all over the globe, you'd, you'd front up to a place and, you know, getting, getting used to the cultures too and the way people went about life. And, you know, it really helped me once I got on the tour because I'd already done kind of like, I don't know, close to 10 years of doing the search movie. So it was kind of, it was familiar to me and Rip Kelly used to, you know, Derek Hyam was running the show then and sometimes he'd send me on trips and just go, you're going to get picked up by this person or, you know, oh, there's, they've got a few dogs, there's a spare kennel, you can sleep in there, like just mucking around, but it wasn't set up and he liked the, the old school kind of, you know, um, not grommet abuse, but he used to make it pretty adventurous and he was pretty eccentric and, you know, I couldn't understand where he was coming from because it helped me grow up as a person and, you know, like getting to his place at J-Bay and I had to surf, it was like the North Shore movie, like I had to surf all the longer boards right, yeah. <laughs> before I could surf my Aloha shorties, you know, yeah, and yeah. then... You know, um, having to take a hire car back in Rhode Island, Boston, when I didn't even have my license yet, and because he had to peel out and go somewhere, and he's like, "Grom, you can take the hire car back. You're sweet." It's a different side of the road. I'm 15, didn't have my license, but I'm taking this Ford Explorer back to the, you know, Avis thing, you know. But then when I rocked up in Europe when I was 18 or 19, and I had to drive the hire car down to wherever, it was seemed like a cinch. So, right, yeah. you know, there was parts of it that were really good for me and things that you can't be taught in school just through life experience and traveling. And, you know, it gave me compassion and, and understanding how other people live. And, you know, there's things around traveling and surfing and meeting people that you can only get through experience. So I was so, so fortunate, you know, to improve my surfing and develop my surfing. And, you know, like I was saying, um, you know, Karim was always trying different equipment and so was Frankie Oberholzer and, and Poncho Sullivan too. He kind of got me on riding longer boards mm. a lot of the time. So, you know, that helped with, you know, having to use the board length and use the rail and, and um, you know, it definitely came out in my surfing and developed me as a human, you know, getting to do that whole campaign and the search and it was definitely something that I, you know, would cherish and it's in me, you know, for life. I'm curious to get your take on this too because um – well, it's not exactly the same. You've probably experienced it in two different phases where, you know, being away so much, you know, if you're, whether you're doing the championship tour or you're doing the search or you're just a professional surfer, someone working on professional surfing, you know, everyone loves having a home community and a base, but, you know, those relationships start to fray the longer you're away from home. And I, I think of it as like, you know, everyone's, you know, in the same book club. But the more time you spend away, you start reading different books, you know, and it's like, and, and, you know, when you leave home at, you know, 14, 15 and start coming back, you know, more and more infrequently by the time you're 25 or by the time you're 30 or by the time that, I guess by the time the traveling's over and you go, I got to have a home again. It's not for a lot of us. I don't feel like it's super seamless to reintegrate back into those communities and to have those same relationships. And I'm wondering if you've experienced that number one, and then number two, if you were kind of aware of it from such a young age because you were traveling so young. Well, I guess it, like anything, you know, relationships take take effort, and you know, a lot of your family are the people that you're on tour with. Mm. You know, you really do bond and you do life together with your with your buddies on tour. So. You know, specifically speaking to when I fell off the tour in 2006, you know, 2007, it was tough because, you know, I used to travel with Mick and Joel and Phil Macker and different guys that I'd grown up with. So, that's not, I really felt not part of and I didn't really know what I was going to do. And then, you know, I thought I'll just do the QS one year and I'll get back on. And I won Scotland and I thought this would be easy. I'll just get back on. And I was kind of still living the way I was living and um, making some choices that weren't really serving me at the time. And Anyways, I didn't get the result that I needed at the end of the year. I didn't get back on the tour. So for the next couple of years, I really felt that void, you know. It was tough to 
to know who I was without being on the tour and you know Nathan loves to surf but it's not Nathan the surfer it was a, it was a tricky transition and time and right. and um yeah you sort of don't have the the depth with the community back at home because you're on the tour and you don't have the nine to five kind of set up so it's it's kind of wild to um get used to living a life where it's not such high highs and low lows it's sort of like just to live this life where the the line goes through the middle and be okay with that because yeah. you're so used to wow this is amazing i had the contest win this is, this is insane and then boom now i'm down and then it's off to the next place up high and then down and yeah having it like be normal it's hard to just live a just a basic life not not anything less than but just a life that's just on a little bit more mellow yeah you get addicted to the you know the next thing and the where's the next, you know, feel good going to come from and then the Con S win and then, you know, it's ingrained in you as a young person because, like, your contracts with Ripco are all set up that way and the better you do, the more money you get and you're doing good and everyone's slapping you on the back and opportunities come and, you know, to get – it's tricky to not get wrapped up in that to base your self-worth around your results. Yeah. And I know that happened for me. It was a big difference from going – I had my second year in the top 10, seventh in 2004, then eighth 2005 to then not even being on the tour anymore. Mm-hmm. was kind of like, whoa, and then my Rubico contract cut in half. Yeah. yeah. I didn't think to look at the fine print that if I wasn't on the tour, my money was going to get cut in half because I just had my second year in the top 10. Yeah, of course. I wasn't yeah. thinking about not being on the tour anymore. Yeah. And then the third year that happened was 60% less. Then the fifth year I wasn't on tour, it was 70% left. So I'm making a fraction of what I was making when I was on the tour, which is fair enough because you're not on the world tour sure, and yeah. whatever. But it's all geared towards – the better you're doing results was very incentive based, yeah. which is kind of, you know, in hindsight, it might've been smarter to gear things up, set them up a little bit differently, but that's just how it worked at that time. And that's how it was. It's hard to adjust your lifestyle that fast too, you know, where it's like, even if you are pretty conservative with your finances, it's still tricky. Cause you're like, Oh, it's, that's radically different than it was the year before. And you know, the, what you were saying before about the up and down, it fascinates me too because so many people that are attracted to surfing it's a little chicken and egg i mean we've had we've had pretty high profile individuals who have been diagnosed you know bipolar manic depressive and even surfing as an act is so up and down you're either up and riding wave or you're just kind of sitting there you know you're traveling around the world or you're at home you know it's like you're winning or you're mostly losing everyone's mostly even the world champs right mm. and as you said it, it whether you're chemically predisposed to be that biologically or not, the system, it seems like over the decades, has been set up to um, exacerbate those highs and lows, right? In a way that, you know, whether you're a competitor on tour, I mean, I mean I've been traveling on tour for 17 years. It's definitely been phases where there's self-medication and you go, I deserve, you know, a pizza for breakfast or a 12-pack for dinner or whatever it is because uh-huh. your rhythms are off. And, and the tour when you were on was a radically different place, I think, culturally to when it was now. But when I started, that was the standard you know everyone was like we're here for a good time yeah it was just sort of what was happening at the time it was kind of a thing to you know you just went as hard as you could in and out of the water and it was um i guess you could get away with it for your early 20s but it kind of started to catch up with me through my early 30s and i sort of knew it wasn't serving me and i told myself oh, i don't want to do that again and i found myself doing it again and making decisions and doing things i wasn't proud of and that, that kind of wore on my my self-confidence and you know it's just I started lying to myself essentially I wasn't being authentic and true to myself and I think that came out in my performance you know mm. I didn't feel like I deserved the wins anymore and you know it's only so long you can kind of fake that you know yeah. but yeah it was just the just just where they were at at the time you know the pioneers and 
it was it was just where the sport was at then and I'm I'm really grateful it's got so much more professional but I you know I also like to see the GLAN event this year everyone letting their hair down a little bit and having a good time and getting the bonding back and there's a time and a place I think it's just it's got a better balance now you know like even like looking at the guys used to party with and stuff it was some you know like Fanning used to have a really you know have a great time but he, he knew when to to be professional when to work and when to play mm. whereas my kind of I mine got a little bit um bit blended there it kind of crossed over yeah. into when I needed to work rather than play so I wanted to keep having a good time so you know everyone's different but it's definitely I mean it was the Foster's World Tour back then you know we were sponsored by Foster's and um every town you went to each week it was that town's week to shine you know and everybody wanted to be your friend and whatever they were doing they wanted to to get for you and there's nothing you know out of the question and I wanted to have a good time with the with the guys on tour so it was just a tricky thing you know and you could just leave that place and fly off to the next place and leave that behind and start fresh. Right. You could yeah. kind of just go. Not have to think about it. Jedi really, mind yeah. trick and just go. We're off to sleep. The, yeah, off to the next place. So you do that for, I don't know, 13 years. It's, you know, nobody escapes. It's going to catch up with you no matter who you are. And, you know, I guess everyone's different, but that was my journey. So that was just the kind of awakening that I needed. So, you know, it's just how it was. How about now? Do you feel like you have a, a balance where you can, you know, let loose and have fun and then work or is it after what you've been through is it more just numb just sobriety and and work that's it yeah i mean i i'm 10 years you know clean and sober now so i kind of congratulations man yeah i i pick and choose my moments and i'll go to all the functions and i'll have a good time but i've got a i've got an exit plan you know i kind of peel out it when i start hearing the same stories over and over or people start you know it's kind of uh i love you man got to do this more often man you know and it starts spitting on you you kind of go oh yeah sweet and I just I just peel out but it was tough the first couple of years I'd kind of just had to say no to different functions and yeah. and and parties and stuff and I felt a little bit you know where do I fit in again but you know now I'm totally comfortable with that and I can go along and have a good time and I've got a kombucha or a soda water in my hand and I'm, I'm stoked you know and I think the people that really know me and know my journey all my relationships and everything in my life got better right and so you know people you know, if I say I'm going to be somewhere, as you know, I'm going to be there, and people can rely on me now. Whereas before, when when I was tangled up in drug and alcohol, there was sort of there was no guarantee where I was going to be, or what people were going to get. So, like I was saying, my my close friends and family are, are just so grateful because they've got me back, and yeah. you know, it's it's something that I um cherish and I don't take for granted. So, yeah, I'm just um I value each day, and I want to be in control these days, and um to an extent, you know, I just want to, you know, it's a way to um. I know too, like with my dad, the last couple of years of his life, I, was, I wasn't I was probably making the best choices for myself. So it's a way to honor him and, and his legacy that, you know, to stay on track and do the best for me. As any parent wants for their child, you know, you're a father of twins. You just want the best for your kids. And, you know, it's it, I know my dad would be stoked for me that I'm, you know, living healthy and, and happy and, um, you know, living my best life. 100%. And I mean, I... It, yeah, like losing a parent or losing a family member is those are times where you you're at you're hurting, you know. Like I lost my dad a few years ago and not for sure. Like sometimes you just want to burn everything down. Yeah. You know, that's how it feels. Yeah. Um it's really tough. I mean, fatherhood for me has radically changed that in a lot of ways. You know, back to the the surfing on tour just across that championship tour window for yourself from from a fan perspective and again someone who got to follow you when you were one of the icons of the surge program your surfing is so um 
how do I put it? Powerful, rail-based, but but something that I think gets underappreciated even today is complete. Like every time I watch you surf a wave, it's from the entry point to the very last section. Like it just seems like you just use the entire canvas. Whereas a lot of surfing, I think in recent years is more focused on like singular maneuvers and punctuation. Whereas yours just felt more symphonic. Um, and I think that's maybe arguably something you got to develop just by being on that search program and surfing waves with those kinds of surfers. And that's, it feels like that's what you brought to the CT. Yeah, that's a huge compliment. And yeah, I guess, well, without the air game, like just looking for the one section, maybe that's got something to do with it. You know, I'm not sort of hunting that one big, big air move where I'm just focused on that one. You know, I, I see good surfing as, yeah, reading the wave correctly and, and being in sync with the wave and knowing knowing when to go high, knowing when to go low and where to finish the wave. And, and you know, it's the read on there. Like that's kind of like someone's personality comes out on the wave and I've always been you know, really inspired by how someone reads the wave, you know, and I feel like I guess that's come out without me even really knowing. But, yeah, it's a huge compliment. Yeah, I like to um, – I guess I like to complete my waves. <laughs> yeah. It's, it, but, and is that maybe are, – are there also some maybe kind of like stylistic fingerprints from some of your colleagues at North Narrabeen as well because – it's a fantastic wave for that location, but it, in, in that, that part of the world compared to maybe what's around there and other beaches around the area. And it just seems like a wave that on its day can offer so much variety as opposed to like, oh, it's just an air section. It's like you can, you can really put together a, a combination on those waves often. Yeah, you've got a, you got a long canvas and you've got an opportunity to you know, put, put your take on, on that wave. You know, That's what I love about it. You know, your character comes out on the wave and you know, that's what I really loved about the guys on the tour and, and surfers through the through the eighties and the nineties. Like you knew who they were as soon as you stood up. Mm. You know, like yeah. I, I really value that. It's like, ah, oh, that's that's Ock or that's Curran or that's that's Tommy Carroll or that's Hoyo or you know, these guys we just knew that's Potts, that's you know, or that's Archie or you know, you knew as soon as they stood up who they were and you know, I, I hope that that's what you know, people see me surf that they might go, oh, that's Hog, you know. Yeah. Well, and that, I'm glad you brought that up too, because that brings me to one of my favorite topics on this podcast, which is the recent phenomenon for young aspiring surfers to all kind of converge on singular places. You know, like in America, if you've got promise, you end up in San Clemente surfing lower trestles. In Australia, to an extent, it's a bit of a gold coast in a way, right? But you lose what I think is, is you, A, you lose the ability to develop at your own pace, but you also lose the ability to develop. It sort of a regionally bespoke style in a way and surfing kind of becomes very homogenous when everyone's at the same wave every day and it does feel like Narrabeen is almost like a light against the darkness in a way there because it's developing specific surfers and, and the specific styles that, that act as a counterpoint when you kind of get to the world stage whether it's the Challenger Series or the CT or whatever it is. Yeah, I agree. Um, it's, it's, it's amazing when you see people surf you know, their, their real strong points, how it relates directly to where they surf. You know, I mean, Chris Davidson was forehand with their little alley rights. It was just so lethal, that attack, that hack that he had. And, you know, Damien Harmon's forehand on the, on the long lefts. Um, Simon Anson's backside, you know, it's just, you know, it, it molds you as a person, as a surfer. And, yeah, I guess it's just, you know, it's just so, so important for you surfing to, to develop on, on those sorts of waves. We talked a lot about your relationship with Tahiti and how special that was to you as a competitor. 
when you're on the championship tour, what other venues would you say were kind of your favorite or, or stronger venues for your your style of surfing? I always loved Cloud Break. You know, it was such an honor for me because I would stay with Ock and Luke. You mm-hmm. know, we'd stay under Motu and we were in Bure One and just to be on trips with them, they were always my heroes and to have that, we sort of had a goofy foot thing going on Bure One and, um, you know, we'd try and beat the Tavarua guys out first in the morning with some... You know, like a little little thing that we had going on, you know, to beat the Tavarua boats out and um, staying mm-hmm. in Bure One with, with my heroes, Ock and Luke. Like, for me, they were the best powerful, goofy footers, you know, on the tour. And, you know, I mean, there's other guys too, but just close to home. And then they kind of took me under their wing as well. And, um, you know, I, I learned a lot from them and how to ride waves and, you know, how to approach things. So, yeah, definitely Cloud Break, you know, was one of my favorite spots. We always had a really good time there. I celebrated my birthday there every year. You know, it was around May, but May, May 28th is my birthday. So that's a special spot for me always in, in my heart. And um, Jeffrey's Bay too, just with the backside, that wave, you know, I've had probably highlights, most of my highlights there as well. And you know, I made the final there against Andy and I beat, beat Kelly there one year. And I think just for backside, that wave is just how fast you can go and what you can do out there and, I think coming over the front leg, like I did well there, like I've noticed in my surfing, whenever I come over the front leg and I drive down, it's, you know, I do my best surfing and I think it sort of forced me to come over my front leg there and and just what you can do with the open canvas, yeah. you know, it's such a special spot. The sun rises there and yeah, just just incredible spot. We touched on it so briefly, but, you know, equipment is such a huge component to an elite surfer's ability to perform against the world's best. And um, you mentioned Aloha surfboards. I remember being at the Rip Curl San Clemente shop. We get the the, the quivers of James Cheel boards for you. And, and now um, you know, you're working with Channel Islands. It, it didn't seem like you were one of those surfers that, that worked with a bunch of different shapers at one time. You kind of were like locked in with one and then locked in with another. And, and is that is that a fair characterization of how you worked on equipment? I definitely had periods where I'd just work with the one shaper, but then when I got to like more big, powerful waves of Hawaii, I'd, I'd change things up. Mm. Like throughout the year, most of my shortboards, I'd work with the one shaper, like yep. James Chill a lot. And we started out on Cluffy's, the Aloha's. And then, um, you know, James started working out of um, Brookvale under Cluffy. And so, you know, Chile then was sort of part of Rupkel surfboards. So I had an association with them and I could get, you know, Chile surfboards. And there wasn't, there was a time on the tour there where everybody had a Chile. It was kind of like me and Dave were riding them. And then like Andy and Bruce started getting them. And then everybody had Chile's at like one point there. So it was like a real, real crazy time, real high performance, incredible boards. And um, so that was cool, you know, that period with Chile. And then, you know, I threw in a few DHs and, um, and also some Webers and uh, what else? Some um, Gunther Rons. Um, probably didn't stray too far from shortboards other than those guys. I got a couple of Mayhems, but not not too many. Just one or two when I went to San Clemente a couple of times. A couple of Timmy Pattersons. Mm. Um, when I got to Brazil, I got some RMs. Now I'm starting to think about it. There's actually, <laughs> there's actually quite a few, you know. Uh, Everyone's going to be stoked because they're all getting a shout out in the episode. Yeah, yeah for sure. <laughs> And then when I got to Hawaii, yeah, I got mentored from um, Damien Harbin early to get on Eric Alcowas because they were the best boards for over there. And I remember leaving boards under Eric's house. He let me leave boards under there each year so I didn't have to travel back and forth with him. And that yeah. was really, really helpful, you know, for him to let, awesome. us, let yeah. us do that. Yeah. And then it kind of, with my association with Poncho, a close friendship, I got on the Jeff Bushmans. 
and they gave me a lot of confidence for Sunset. They were the best sports for Sunset and for Pipe too. So, And then I guess um, Takoro came on the scene as well for me and I got a bunch of Takoros that I loved. And, you know, coming back here to Tahiti, I'd bring my Bushmans and my Eric Alcowas and um, my Takoros to, for that extra confidence. They just had a bit more, so much more feedback in the powerful heavy water waves that I trusted them, you know. Mm. And we'd take them back and, you know, the Aussie shapers would pinch some profiles and templates, try, try to try to you know make the boards better from Australia. And I feel like the gap has levelled out. You know, I mean, I know JS and DH and a lot of guys you know get Parker and Mick to come back and you know just try to try to improve the equipment and learn off off the best. Yeah. When you were on tour, you mentioned when, when if you were in search that you got to experiment with different boards and that was kind of the perfect environment for it. But so many surfers, specifically back then, but even today on the championship tour, they kind of fall into two camps. You know, that's like, I have to ride my Ferrari in every condition to stay as sharp as possible on it. Yeah. And then there's another camp that, oh, no, I'll ride a fish or a quad or whatever. Which camp did you find yourself in when you were on tour? I stayed in the Ferrari camp. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't – I don't mean I, – I'm not really sort of too too psyched on riding too much different stuff because I I wanted to stay, you know, on sharp, sharp on my, my equipment and get them dialed, you know, and even like the 20s and the fishes and stuff, I still I still want to turn and, and, and surf as hard as I can. So I kind of stay on my regular stuff most of the time. Maybe something I can be a bit more open to these days. But, yeah, I stayed on the – my contest boards a lot. It does actually make a ton of sense with regards to your surfing since a huge element of it is just precision. You know, so having that reliability of a high-performance thruster in all conditions just makes a ton of sense as well. Yeah, I guess it's something like learning more about me too and areas to improve on. Like, um, it's not a failure if I fall off or things don't have to be perfect. And, you know, having that perfectionism can be, it's got me so far, but also it can be an element that I could look at and maybe it's okay if I don't, do something amazing every time yep. you know it's sort of can work both ways so maybe that's something like you know being transparent with you like with the airs maybe I don't try as many airs because I don't want to look like I suck at them you know <laughs> it just didn't come naturally to me growing up I wanted to hit the lip and throw as much water as I could and the guys I looked up to were just you know throwing so much water and hitting lips as hard as they could it wasn't sort of natural to go and boost right so I know it's been an area when I have worked on airs and I love doing airs. Don't get me wrong. When I do, I'm like, wow, I should do this more often. But it doesn't come. It's not my first thought when yeah. I see a section. Yeah. So, and I know that's about, I don't want to look silly in front of people, you know. So if I'm down the beach or somewhere weird, I don't mind doing airs. But so, yeah, it's, um you know, always growing and evolving and hopefully getting out of my comfort zone more and, and getting better and staying, staying like a grom, learning. Yeah. It, it makes sense though too, because I mean, the two different this is two different approaches to surfing you know and it's like yours is so as i said like symphonic and comprehensive to the point where a lot of times you know aerial surfers they're pushing through parts of the wave that could be ridden to set up that section right and it just it does seem like something that you'd have to kind of reprogram yourself around but it also feels that that symphonic side of and, and power-based surfing has actually come back around in terms of elite level surfing in a lot of ways where it does feel kind of maybe late oddies early 2010s there's a lot of emphasis around well it's not about the whole wave it's like if you can do an air reverse that's an excellent level score 
and the pendulum kind of swung out that way. And now it's probably swung back to the point where, you know, the surfing you're doing either out here getting your perfect tens or at Jeffrey's Bay getting perfect tens is still elite level. Yeah. I'd like to think it's always going to be relevant and it's not going to go away and there's always going to be a place for it. You know, being on rail and power surfing and reading the, the wave and my take and read on it, I'm, I'm hoping they'll, you know, never get always be a place for it you know and i feel like now the judging too if, as soon as your board goes flat you know they're seeing through that mm. you know not naming any names but i've noticed it this year some surfing at bells and a couple of the other spots where some of the surfers surfboards would go flat they weren't getting big scores and you know they want to see it on rail and critical and it's just cool that there's more than one way to get an eight or a nine you know there's a couple ways you can go about it but the you know the power and the precision commitment you know this you can you can achieve that you know you can get to the pointy end of the events and win events from um from that style of surfing and i think that's important you know 100 percent. yeah we're going to take one more break to get a word in from our sponsors and we'll be right back hey i hear you think podcasts are all about true crime huh well wise guy the iheart radio app's got all kinds of podcasts we got stuff you should know and stuff they don't want you to know we got Bobby Bones, Big Boy, and Lou Later. We got SpongeBob Binge Pants and Exotic Erotic Storytime. We got Doughboys, Two Dudes in a Kitchen, Green Eggs and Dan. Hey, we got ElfQuest. We got podcasts for everything on the iHeartRadio app for free. If you don't download that, well, that's not just a true crime, my friend. That's criminal. Manduka was founded in 1997 with the simple idea that a better yoga mat could make a world of difference. For generations, Manduka has revolutionized the yoga space by providing purposely crafted products that enable a more joyful practice, whatever that looks like for you. The collaboration between Manduka and Jerry Lopez honors Jerry's profound dedication to both surfing and yoga disciplines. The limited edition collection showcases Jerry's signature camouflage print inspired by his surfboards. It fuses his iconic surf style with Manduka's commitment to quality and sustainability, offering everyone a unique expression of their practice. We all know that having the right gear is essential and a yoga mat is no different. Feel the benefits of yoga with Manduka's soulfully engineered, eco-friendly products designed to inspire your practice wherever you go. The Manduka and Jerry Lopez collection want to inspire you to practice yoga however you choose to. And from now until June 10th, you will get 15% off of all products when you visit manduka.com with the code THELINEUP15. That's manduka.com code the lineup 1515 we touched on it in the last segment meteoric rise you know he won the world juniors at Hollywood i think it's 97 wild cards search program contracts you get on tour and you've you got these seasons and you're just moving into the top 10. And as you said, it's two years back to back in the top 10. And then in 2006, just this abrupt change, you know, um, results didn't come. You went back on the QS, we talked a little bit about, and, and I've experienced it on a, a smaller scale too. It's so hard to leave the tour because that's your family, you know, and you've been traveling to them as, in, as you said, like for years and years, didn't work out back on the QS what was post-championship tour life for you career-wise? Because at one point, you, you, I think you became a longshoreman. 
Yeah, correct. I I when I fell off the tour in two thousand and six, I had a I just signed a five year deal with Rip Curl, but it was based on me being on the tour on the on the CT tour. So you know, it got dramatically reduced, but I still had three more years of that contract to see out. And then when that came up in 2010, you know, they didn't renew my contract and I was gone from getting paid to surf since I was 13 to I think I was about, what, 27, 28, not making a dime from surfing anymore. So it was a radical change, you yeah. know, and, and I had to get some, um, you know, I was still living a champagne life on a beer wage and I had to, you know, change the way I was living. And, you know, personally, you know, before I get into like career and how I was going to make money, I had to changed my lifestyle as well and that for me was um you know sorting out the drug and alcohol side and you know I started to look at getting seeking some help for that side of it so it was um that was a journey I had to learn to live a day at a time without putting something in my body to change how I was feeling mm. you know it was it was a big change from going on the tour and to not being there anymore and you know that around that time you know my rib curl deal had finished um I wasn't on the tour anymore I had to sell my place, my property at Narrabeen. It was on the lake, like my dream place. I thought I was going to stay out till forever. You know, it was my dream property. My dad passed away that year. So it was this radical chain of events where the carpet just got pulled out so gnarly where I just got slammed. And I just had, you know, it was such a big awakening through 2010 that it was it was radical for me, you know. Yeah. And I went into, you know, tried a bunch of different rehabilitation places. And, you know, the third time that I went there, I um I stayed for a year, you know, I completed the program and I've managed to stay, you know, clean and sober since then. But it was, you know, I didn't even know if I was going to come back to surfing. I wasn't sure. Like, I just, just wanted to get my life back on track. And, you know, seeing me today, it's probably hard to imagine that's how it could have been for me, but that's that's where it got to. Yeah. And that's what I needed to change, you know. I think, ah, oh, you know, if I could have, you know, I got the result at Scotland where I won the prime and there wasn't many primes that year. So I just needed one more result. I thought, oh, I finally could have got back on tour, but there's a part of me that knows intuitively that had I got back on the tour, maybe I wouldn't have had the radical change that I needed to because I would have been back on tour. And right, my you head, would have hit bottom. No, nah, my yeah. head would have gone, well, I'm sweet. I'm back on tour and I'll just do what I did before. And, you know, you know that's just, you know, what I sense and what I know for me because, you know, I mean, I've seen it with other people. It's no matter what you get. If, you know, it's not about when I get there and then I'll be okay. I had to do the radical change from within and, and um, and, you know, I sort of, a couple of years down the track from that, you know, five years away from the tour and, you know, I'm now sober. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I met an incredible girl at the time and I, you know, wanted to start to have a family and so I got into that chapter and so I was doing some surf coaching on the side but it wasn't really something that, you know, was felt like a family, enough to provide for my family. It was a little bit sporadic and it was sort of come and go a little bit. So, I you know, I went on the wharfs in Sydney and... um I started out down the south coast of New South Wales taking whenever the new cars arrive in Australia. It was like driving all the new cars off the ships mm-hmm. and um, pretty bad. It was like working through the night, 10, 12-hour shifts and you're basically driving out of a, a shopping mall off the ship, these massive, you know, 10, 10 levels of cars, like 5,000 cars on the ship and you'd all jump in a car and drive it down in synchronicity and get to a drop-off point, jump back in a van and then and go again, you know, it was... It was pretty rad going from being getting paid to surf your whole life. Well, I was going to ask you too, like, because it's not even just getting paid to surf your whole life, but it's such your identity for so long. And you, you hear this from people, whether it's surfing or not, that, you know, something just sort of overtakes their life so much that when they do end up moving away from it, sometimes it's liberating to be like, I don't, no one, 
bothers me and no one knows me from what I used to do and I can do this thing now. Did you did you feel any of that, just trying something different for a change? I think it was really good for me. Yeah. Um, definitely was was good to, you know, some of the same skill sets and who I was as a person I could apply in other areas and it turns out I can actually do other things and, <laughs> and I'm not just that, you know. It was kind of cool, like... Like it, it, my skill set, like my resume per se, is like I've, I've got, I've come through the education of, of pro surfing and I've got my papers there and there's some things where you think, well, I've put all my eggs in that one basket. What am I going to do? I'm now 30. I don't have my apprenticeship. I don't have this or that or a business. So it's a little bit daunting, but, you know, the same skills, you know, I guess as an employee, you want to see someone with commitment. Mm-hmm. You want to see that they're responsible. You want to see that they're passionate. You know, these are the skills that I've, turns out that I've got through my surfing. And they're going to back themselves. They're going to be, you know, they're going to be able to adapt, you know. So it was kind of cool to learn that for myself that I could do other things, and there was, you know, to stay open minded to other things. And and there's there's other ways about, you know, living a life. And it was healthy because it gave me perspective and um, gratitude for for my surfing. Because, you know, when it come, I wouldn't say it came easy because a lot of sacrifice. It was really hard work, my family's part, and it took everything to get to, you know, to be a top 10 athlete in any sport it, it doesn't just happen there's a lot of hard work so but it also gave me perspective um for what it was and when you're in it you don't i didn't really see it you know so it was it was cool to um have the appreciation for it and and then you know to have it come around full circle and be back getting paid to surf again you know it's it, it means so much now it's incredible and, and i mean even i, I loved what you said too because it's like you know, surfing can be such a kind of fringe community in society and so idiosyncratic in its own way that you, you, you question, you're like, I don't know if I can be like a civilian anywhere else. I don't know if I'm like, I don't know if I'm like housebroken to be working in another career, you know? And it's like, as you said, it's like, it takes a lot of internal work to be able to say, it wasn't all a mess. I learned a lot of really good things. I am a I am a valuable person, and I can apply those things to somewhere else. And to see it work must just be like hugely inspiring to yourself. Where you're like, oh, I'm gonna be okay. Yeah, it was rad. Because then from the taking the cars off the ships, I kind of advanced. I got my maritime security card, and then that opened up a door for me to go to back to Sydney on the um, Port Botany Wharf, and it was with this massive logistics company dp world and they're one of the you know the best in the business and so i was, I was part of a team again you know there's so really some really good people there and it was kind of like high intensity and um it was changing like you know the ships would come in it would depend on the weather and sometimes you'd be up there like two in the morning part of a team and you had to unlash the 40 foot boxes and then you know it was it was gnarly because then you, you jump in the semi-trailers and you come alongside the ship and then the the cranes would drop these 40 foot you know however many ton boxes on the back of the semi boom you'd have to line up with a laser it was like it was super dangerous and gnarly and um but you know you were part of a team again and um it was it was a pretty pretty cool environment to be to be part of that and um you know i dug deep it wasn't easy like the shifts would start at 10 at night you'd finish at six in the morning Mm. a lot of the times because you were the new guy you'd get put on those shifts a lot you know i had a young family you know it took a lot to just how did i end up here you know it's sort of like took a lot of acceptance and um you know just to to dig in but i did that at that time and it it got me through and taught me a lot about myself again so i'm really grateful for that experience you know we're very fortunate we've got um, a really great listenership and and the more candid a lot of our guests are we we get so much feedback from people like i really helped like listening to that so i want to thank you for already being as candid as you have been and 
you know, I'd imagine that, that, that working through the program ahead of all this gave you a lot of the tools to, to be able to deal with that, to deal with acceptance and to deal with evolving as a human being. You mentioned it was the third try for you going through a program. Do you have any comments on why it didn't work out the first two times? Because we know a lot, it happens to a lot of us where it's like just doesn't take for whatever reason. And then a uh, follow-up to that is, is the program something that you still work through to this day? Because it's something that, you know, as I understand it, just never ends. You know, it's something that's constant. Yeah, it's um the, I mean, the first few tries, like I just wasn't ready. Yeah. I hadn't had the complete surrender. You know, I was still holding on to the towel a little bit, like, oh, you know. Right, yeah. And just sort of looping back briefly on it, like the first program was a 28-day program and that was kind of said, you know, change your habits. It can happen in 28 days. Do a 28-day program and you can change your life. Like, yeah, 28 days, sweet. So I did the, I did the 28-day program in the hospital at Manly and um, I stayed clean and sober for about nine months mm. and I thought, oh, I could probably just go back and I got I can control this. I'll just... Just won't drink on the on the weekdays, or I'll just drink light beers. I won't drink spirits. Mm. I'll just do that, and then went back out, did a bit more research, and then didn't work for me. You know, kind of got back to how it was pretty quick. And then when my dad passed away, and stuff happened, rib curl, and you know that that rock bottom happened. I went to another place on the back of uh, in the Sunshine Coast. Um, uh, we help ourselves. It was sort of no frills, really. Kind of, there's a lot of recovery there. It's what I needed, but it wasn't fancy. It was pretty tough, you know, like. And I stayed there for uh, about three months mm. and it was a six to 12 month program. I got to three months and said, I'm good. I'm, uh, I've learned enough. You guys might need to stay here and do a bit more, but I'm, I'm good. You know, I think I got this and, you know, it's part of my character that, you know, has got me so far, but at the same time to be open that somebody else might know better, you know, owning that my best thinking got me here, Right. you know, but it's, a, it's an, you know, it's a, is a disease that'll kind of tell you that you don't have it. So it's a tricky thing, you know. It's um, I can get well physically, but it's you got to take care of the spiritual, and mental aspect too, mm. and that probably need a little bit more work. But you know, I left the program then, and I stayed sober for like 15 months, and I thought I had it. You know, it was pretty good, but you know, it got back to where it was pretty quick again. And then I was out there for like two years, and things got so bad. You know, just got you know really, really quite terrible for me. And so by the third time I went in. I was completely ready. Yeah. Total surrender. I'm just going to do whatever I'm told and, you know, just, just wave the white flag and just, just did what I was told, you know, um, and I committed to the program and put my trust in the people that facilitate the program and just, just believed in, you know, higher power that, that my higher power moves through other people and yeah, that somebody other than me knew better, mm. you know, it was, it was hard because I never liked being told what to do. I don't think anybody does. And like I was saying, a lot of my, assets in my life and my career is through backing myself and thinking I knew best and that kind of pig head kind of is such a valuable asset to, to back yourself but winning, knowing when to go well I don't know what to do here and, and asking for help and the complete surrender so it was, a, it was a combination of things and maturity in my life and being in enough pain that I wanted to change mm. you know being open to that and um, just doing whatever it took it was another level of commitment. I mean, yeah, and it's. I appreciate you sharing that, yeah. and, and having ten years is a huge thing to celebrate and congratulate you on. Yeah, and it, it is a daily. It is a day at a time. You know, it's. I've got ten years up from a day at a time, and you know, I do still. I'm actively engaged in in my network and support group, and um, you know, I check in with certain people within my circle. You know, on the daily, and you know, I attend 
different meetings and um you know read a lot of literature and just try to you know connection and you know um i have a program in my life for sure all of this has sort of led us to this moment you know all of your experience at, at 43 and and there's again a I mean, I've got to clock myself now, maybe 20, 25 year fan of yours, you know, and it, it seems to me, um, you've never been stronger mentally, emotionally, spiritually, even physically. It, it seems like you're in this rarefied atmosphere of, it, it does seem like, and I want to get your opinion on it. Like, it seems like you're stronger than you've ever been in every way. And it seems like you're surfing better than you've ever been in every way. And age is kind of just not really a variable in that. Is that, is that fair? Do you feel like that or? Yeah, it's, i definitely feel like that, you know, some stuff happening in my life back home, you know, I, I had, you know, through a divorce and there was some, you know, things that life happens, you know, and I sort of had, had a decision to make to go, go that way. Or am I going to go that way? And, you know, to be proud, of myself and do what's right for my daughter. So, you know, seven years into my sobriety, I kind of had another decision to make. Am I going to sink or swim? Am I going to dig in and be the best version of myself for my daughter? And so that really helped me inspire to take my fitness and my surfing to another level. And I use that as a real motivator. And, you know, I'm fortunate I got some really good mentors in my life. Like, you know, I really look up to um, Matt Granger, who's like a 10 year, he's a decade older than me and he's in the best shape of his life now, you know, and he's, I really respect him in a business sense and how he lives his life. So I've had Matt Granger there as a real asset. And then I've got Tom Carroll, who's like 18 years older than me. He's early sixties and how he's looked after himself and how he can be super present now and, and, and how he lives his life has just been, you know, such a, mo- a motivation and an inspiration for me having Tom there and you know, there's a couple of older guys at Narrabeen too that are the next bracket up where they've shown me like you can surf well right into your 70s and you can live a life you know beyond the wildest dreams if you know you look after yourself and you know closer to home obviously Kelly you know what he did you know at the start of the year being 50 it kind of just shattered any bullshit around you know you're being too old and um it just really inspired me to you know, to get back in the competitive scene. And it was already sort of something there that was boiling underneath my skin. But I just, you know, it, it really sort of gave me the, the extra little bit of air in my tires to, to chase after. And I, you know, I, I, I was doing some mentoring and some competing in the local Australian regional series this year. And that was really good for me to sort of drop some, some gems with the young kids coming through and to be involved with that and then it turned out like I got second at Newcastle and it was a massive result and so it kind of got the fire burning back again and I ended up getting 11th on the Challenger Series and so I was one spot out of the Challenger Series and I just it kind of like you know it, it surprised me in some ways and it kind of gave me some more motivation and um, I haven't been able to do the Challenger Series this year for a couple of reasons but you know it sort of it reaffirmed that age is just a number and I think when you marry the experience and the knowledge and the wisdom with the physical side, like I feel like I'm stronger now than what I was at 25. And I think as a man, I'm probably right where I need to be. And I've spoken to guys like at a 55 and 60 and they've, they've all told me like they've probably been the strongest and fittest they were at 45. So, you know, I just figure if I look after myself, there's no reason why I can't, you know, break some old stories and some old molds and, and give it my best shot, you know? I love it. Yeah. Can't wait to see how you go in Tahiti this week. And, uh, yeah, you're still a few years off of peaking, man. Forty-five. Well, yeah, you never know. I mean, it's all just staying open and um, just you know having some dreaming big, and uh, you just just never know what could happen. So you know, it's just keep backing yourself and make one good decision after the next, and things things can happen for you. You know. We put a feeler out for questions from the uh, the Instagram community, and uh, we got a lot back. 
but we've uh, we whittled down to three. Um, first question is from at Aiden underscore Stark Chessa, who asks, how do you get back into contest mode? I guess it's it's in me, you know, whether you're born with it or not. But there's a lot of work, you know, like I'm in the shape I am for a lot of hard work and I've been blessed that I've been time rich, you know, with my circumstances, I get to, I get to dedicate a good portion of my day to my fitness and to allocate, you know, to being committed to, to my equipment and to surfing. And um, so it's, it's a lot of hard work. Like I haven't got to where I am now through just going like, oh, Kelly's done it. So I can probably do it. Like it's a, there's really no shortcuts. It's um getting your recipe right, what works for you. And then you know, nuts and bolts of it, it's kind of like getting back into the system, whichever level you can get back into. For me, it was the regional Australian series or different opportunities and then stepping stones, stepping stone, you know, see what next level you could get the next opportunity, you know, and I feel like I'm now in Tahiti on the back of my my performance some years ago, um, my association with Out Unknown, but also staying relevant and my result at, at Newcastle and fronting up and being at Snapper and and so it takes, you know, effort to, to sharpen your tools and to stay relevant to whatever capacity that looks like for you, whether you're a board rider surfer or whether you're a weekend warrior or it's it's digging right into your commitment and, and dedicating a portion of your day to, to where you want to get to. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, you say you're blessed being time rich where you get to work on yourself like that, but it's also something that you've made sacrifices and earned. You've earned being time rich to do that too and i i think of that through the prism of myself and a lot of us too where it's like you can get off the phone you don't have to watch that you know, you know it's like there is time but you do have to work to get it and and it is rewarding when you put it back in because as you said it's you know it's never too it's never too late to get results yeah correct and you know like results for me has been present for my daughter and being available being healthy and living you know celebrating life so you know, the actual contest results is, that's all a bonus. Yeah. Next question is from at Gabriel MV08, who asks, who was the gnarlier rival, AI or Kelly? For me, uh, probably AI, just the mongrel. Like I'll give you an example. Um, second or third year on the tour here, where I had him in a three-man heat, me, Danny Wills and, and AI, and I was already deep on the reef. It was like an eight-foot wave come in. Heart rate's gone, you know, right through the roof and this set comes and it's the start of the heat and there's no priority and I'm in position, I'm going to take off and Andy just whips straight around the back of me, takes off like a metre deeper than me, drops way gnarly, way deep and gets blown out the barrel and just like, just blew my mind and he just showed me right in that moment like what he's willing to do to, to get a win and just as a competitor, the, just the fire, it was just, it was nuts, you know, and um, his comfortability comfortability with that situation just blew my mind so i think andy was kind of more ruthless last one from the instagram community is from at vaguely underscore ethnic underscore guy who asks what does your event win celebration look like so after, so since this is going to land after you win the outer known tahiti pro what does the celebration look like for you in 2022 it looks like uh there's some tears going on. <laughs> there's some screaming. There's some veins popping out of my head that I get when I get really excited and pumped up. The veins are popping out of my head, out of my neck. There's a you know a hand on my heart, you know, in in gratitude and honor for for the moment and, and appreciation for you know the mountains and and the whole creation that Chopu is. And um, yeah, it's just it's uh, I'll be I'll be thinking of my dad in that moment and my daughter and 
yeah, so just overwhelmed with gratitude. Love it. Well, thank you to the uh, Instagram community at the lineup pod for those questions. We're now down to the final segment. This is the lightning round. So it's 10 questions for you to answer as quickly as you can. If you could only have one board set up for the rest of your life, single fin, twin fin, thruster, quad bonzer, or finless, which would you choose? Thruster. Coffee or tea? Coffee. Burrito or pizza? Burrito. Last book you read? Power of Now. Best surf film ever? Beyond the Boundaries. One wave you never have to go back to? <laughs> um, Shark Island. <laughs> that thing was nuts. If you only get to surf one way for the rest of your life. Cloud break. Best person to share a lineup with. MF. Worst person to share a lineup with. <laughs> Probably Parker because he gets every wave. <laughs> His arms are too long. <laughs> that was perfect. Uh, last one. Finish this sentence. I will next achieve a state of happiness by. Staying present and um, being true to myself. Hedgie, thank you so much. This was a, a true honor for me personally, and I think our listeners are going to love it. And uh, good luck in the event this week. And uh, yeah, you're inspiring us all. So, man, just keep ripping. Stoke, thanks for the opportunity to hang out, brother. And um, yeah, let's, let's get psyched this week. Let's go. So that's it. That's the lineups conversation with Australia's Nathan Hedge. I hope you enjoyed it. The 2022 WSL Championship Tours regular season has come to a close with the WSL Final Five set to compete for the world title at the upcoming Rip Curl WSL Finals at Lower Trestles starting on September 8th. The event will stream live at worldsurfleague.com and the WSL app. Do not miss it. This episode is produced by Henry Beyer with art direction by Jason Penning, copywriting by Dan Willen, and additional support from Miguel Clemente. Thanks to them and thanks to our sponsors. We appreciate their support. The lineup acknowledges that it is recorded and produced on the ancestral lands of the Chumash, the Kumeye, and the Maohi native people. I hope you safely get some waves wherever you are, and we'll see you next Tuesday. WSLstore.com is powered by Shopify. We love the analytics we can check on the go. A lot of us are addicted to checking the Shopify app on our phones. We also love the automations and marketing integrations with our social and YouTube channels. It has incredible features to help us manage our global audience, including international taxation support and great shipping optionality. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek skis, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the US, and Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. 
Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash lineup, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash lineup now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash lineup. 